On today's podcast, we have Sir Clive Woodward. Sir Clive is a Grand Slam winning international player for England and a British and Irish Lion. He's an incredibly accomplished businessman who went on to become the first professional rugby coach in England. He famously led England to become 2003 world champions, beating the Australians in Australia. He built the number one ranked team in the world at the time with 12 consecutive wins against the Southern Hemisphere Giants the All Blacks, South Africa and Australia. He then pivoted into a role as Director of Sport for Team GB at the Beijing 2008 and London 2012 Olympics. And he's currently busy producing a British skiing talent pipeline in search of that first Team GB gold medal. In this episode, we're going to talk about that iconic moment. Johnny sealed it against the Aussies in Melbourne to win the 2003 World Cup. We're going to talk about what it takes to build elite performance teams and crucially, how to set and enforce high standards. I hope you enjoy. So Clive Woodward, welcome to the Accelerating Excellence podcast. Thanks, James, and good morning to everyone. Look, I'd love to get going with asking you, you've had this incredible career in rugby. And the first question I'd love to ask you is, what was it that attracted you to the sport in the first place? Can you remember that moment the concept of rugby entered your world? It's, it's probably the complete opposite. The um, my kind of my my first love, and it really was a love, was football. Right. And I was uh, a complete football nut. Uh, I can remember as a ten-year-old watching the World Cup final in, in, in Wembley in soccer. I can name that team. So I was completely football mad. And what happened to me, James? My father was in the Royal Air Force, and I was like eleven or twelve years old. And the headmaster of our, our school I went to came to see him, and said, "Look, your 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 twelve-year-olds." quite bright um but he's you know he, he could go university which in those days was unheard of in our family he said but he's never going to make it because he just plays all his time playing football and, and my, my dad was in the air force and he could send me away and be paid by the air force for me to go away to a boarding school so without me knowing he chose and there's lots of reasons why he chose this horrendous school called hms conway a merchant navy boarding school and quite simply i was sent there as a 12 or 13 year old and they played they played three sports rugby rugby and rugby that was the end of my football career i hated the school i made no bones about it i was there from 13 to 18. i didn't like rugby one little bit when i first started playing it but to survive at the school like most schools if you're good at sport you kind of get by and you can imagine i mean i was obviously good at sport um i was very good at sport so why your father would send you to a merchant navy boarding school which you're gonna be sent off to sea at some stage so I en ended up, you know, I ran away from school two or three times, didn't like school, all because of football. I didn't mind being at school. I didn't mind being away from my parents. That was great, in fact. I just had to get on with it, really. So I started playing playing, playing rugby, and the rest is kind of history, really. And um, so, yeah, my first off was football. I kind of got thrown into rugby because that was the only, only sport they played at the school. And I was obviously became quite good at it because I played scrum half and fly half and kind of moved on and the rest, is, the rest is history, I guess. But it's, it's kind of a bit of anathema about loving rugby because I didn't really. Okay, so you, so you start playing rugby. When was the first moment you sort of thought, I'm really good at this? Because there's playing rugby and then there's achieving what you did in the game. But when was that first moment you you or the people around you sort of recognised that talent? It wasn't until I left school because the school was so backward. We didn't send boys to trials or anything. I was just this kid playing rugby at the school. I was obviously pretty good. I ended up being captain of the team. Um, and there's only when I left school, I took a year off before going to Loughborough University. I worked in London and no one had heard of me. I literally walked into Harlequins. I literally just walked in with a backswing and I said, can I, can I play? So 
So I started training with Harlequins. And, and you know, in 18, most people have heard of an 18-year-old. I didn't play for English schools or Welsh schools or anything because we had no trials. So I went down to Harlequins and suddenly within literally three or four weeks, I'm in the first team. So I went straight from nowhere. Imagine now going straight to Harlequins' first team. That's what I did. And in those days, we played at Twickenham. So we, we had our home game, not, not the Stoop game. We actually played at the Twickenham Stadium. So I remember I was 18 years old. I'd been at Harlequins about a month. We played against Cardiff. And Gareth Edwards was playing for Cardiff. So I'm 18-year-old, played fly half. No one ever heard of me. There's Gareth Edwards playing number nine, who's legend, of course. So that's when I started thinking, well, this is quite fun, actually. And I started to quite enjoy it and think, actually, I'm quite good at this. And then when that, that first year, I played for England Colts because now everyone could see what I was doing. I was playing for the game. So that's when I first kind of realized. But I was one of the few people who didn't come through the system. I was kind of just played this, this rugby at school. Um, and it's still kind of a big, you can probably tell, it's still part of me that, um, you know, I, I had a big fallout with my parents about this. We never really, never really got on after this ever because, you know, I just said you can't stop people doing what they really want to do. You know, you just can't, especially with kids. With my three kids, they're grown up. I've been really conscious about, you know, if this is what you really want to do, I'm going to try and make it happen along with, within reason. So you just got to support those things. But Harlequins was good. I had a whole year at Harlequins. Uh, and then went to Loughborough University under a great coach called Jim Greenwood. And then my career really took off when I went when I went to university. Fantastic. And then ultimately going on to play for England, winning Grand Slams. Um, was that as exponential as your rise, as, as sort of you burst onto the scene with with Harlequins? Yeah, the same thing happened. Because we, we, I went to university, I went to Loughborough, did my degree in sports science and also did a year in Sir Ted, so I'm a fully qualified teacher. But in those days, if you went to university, unless it was Oxford and Cambridge, you didn't play for your country. So again, that in looking back, that was actually quite good because to actually play at university for those four years, I captained the left side and it was a really good side and we were fit. And Jim Green was one of the best coaches I've ever, I've ever played under. We had a great book called Total, Total Rugby. So I learned a lot from Jim. But then my first year out of university, I played for Leicester. And that year, um, I played for England. Went straight in the England team. My, my first my first five games were a grand slam. I just, it just, it just really strange that the whole career went, went, went like that. So incredible. And how old were you that time? I'd be 23. Wow. I was working for, and also just to stress, I mean, it was an amateur game. Of course. So I was, I was working for Xerox. And uh, when I left university, I'm a qualified teacher, but I, I joined Xerox because you, you couldn't really get that high, high levels amateur rugby player if you're going to be a teacher, where Xerox were able, you know, able to kind of look after me, basically. And, um, you know, it's just really, really, you can't stress to people. I, I'd be playing for England at Twickenham, 75,000 people on a Saturday afternoon against Wales, live on BBC, Bill McLaren, the legendary commentator. And on Monday morning, I promise you, I was in a rank Xerox sales office. They're giving my forecast in by how many, how many photocopies I'm going to sell that week. It's just it's hard to even imagine that with, with modern sport the way it is now. It wasn't that long ago. It, was, it wasn't too long ago, but that, that's what it was. And we would you know, have a huge weekend in London, get absolutely smashed with our oppositions, have a huge night Saturday night. And, um, but I was literally in, you know, and I was looking back now, there's a lot of, you know, I'd, I'd have loved to be a professional rugby player. I'd have loved it. But then we, we, we couldn't, it's now but today. I, I, I was playing with a bricklayer, a lawyer, teachers, you know, just the whole team was am amateur players. My whole career was amateur. I played 21 times for England, and that covered literally five years. So I was in the side for quite a long period of time. So we didn't really play the Six Nations or Five Nations as, as it was then. But it, it was an amateur game. And, you know, I was working for a very professional company in Rank Xerox and a very amateur organisation called, called Rugby when I was playing for England. 
Incredible. And Xerox, what, I mean, where did that come from? What, was it something you, you was sales something you identified yourself or was it something that was presented to you? You know, I was obviously a good player and I was playing at Loughborough and I was captain of Loughborough. Leicester Tigers wanted me to join them. I went to see them and I said, well, you know, I need a job. And like all things in those days, one of the um, senior board members worked for Xerox. He was a big, big, big wig in the Xerox world. So I met this guy and he said, well, come and join Rank Xerox. We'd love to have you. If you work in the Leicester office, we'll get you a job in sales and marketing, whatever it was. But I joined as a graduate trainee. So no, this was totally unplanned. And it was a job for Rank Xerox. And I ended up loving it. It was Xerox were great for me. I was there nearly sort of uh, seven, eight years with Xerox. So it was just one of those things. And, you know, I, I very much moved into the finance side. I worked for Xerox Finance. But you know, I, I could talk all the days about those those training. But they kind of, it's just competitive. That's what I loved about it. You know, you, you just joke about how many photocopies you're going to sell. Their, their, their whole success was based on being real com, com, competition in, in the actual office. And you want to be, be good, at, good at those things. So I took it really seriously. And, it did pretty well out of it. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, is it fair to say that actually shaped your, your approach to performance full stop, exposure to that to that world? Yeah, I think there's two, there's two things. One, well, there's probably three things. One, one I think being um, a qualified teacher should not be underestimated. I mean, coaching is teaching. <laughs> so m not many people actually, um, you know, from the sporting point of view, go through this one-year search edge where you do a whole year of teacher training, basically. So that, that was key. <laughs> Xerox was, then I went into Xerox for, for sort of eight years it was. And yeah, just really real, com real com um, the competition was great within the office, basically, but it was just really good nature. And it was all very, very good. And, you know, national league tables, international league tables. If you sold so many, you went on a trip to Bahamas and stuff I never even dreamt about before. Then but probably one of the, the biggest things is when I, you know, I, I went to Australia with, with Xerox. And when we came back from Australia, I set up my own small leasing and finance company based on the skills I learned with Xerox Finance. That was probably the biggest thing that I think people don't understand with myself that was the biggest learning when you run your own small leasing and finance company i say small james it was like 10 people but you know you if you, if you don't succeed you you lose your house school fees aren't met so my, my you know having a big multinational background with xerox was really important but probably more important was running my own small leasing and finance company where you do learn to manage people you learn to take risks you learn to manage upwards and all this sort of stuff so when i took over the rugby team it was, it really, it was a it was a small business. Instead of having ten people, I had fifty people. But that skill set I'd learned through teaching, through Xerox, and a small small business mindset. Yeah, I mean, it always sounds like the perfect talent development environment for what you uh, the the role you went on to, I guess, uh, excel in in terms of your academic background at Loughborough, then the actual practical approach of the teaching. And then again, putting it all to practice uh, as a performer on a rugby pitch, concurrently getting that exposure to a high performance corporate environment, and then ultimately the skin in the game uh, in terms of running your own business. And, and at what point did the um, at what point did management sort of jump out at you? Um, it didn't really jump out. I think I think at Xerox. I mean, the whole the whole kind of hierarchy. You, you, everyone's got to go through the sales process, which is great. You've, you've got to do the hard yards. But all you want to get out of that, I mean, this is a tough, tough job. I mean, my patch was flipping Chesterfield and Buxton. And I think there's there's more sheep in Chesterfield and Buxton than people want to buy photocopiers. So it's, it was kind of a, a tough patch. That, that, was, that was my patch. But you used to do a huge amount of learning. Uh, but then the next skill is, can you be a sales manager? Can you then take over a sales team? So within two years, I was managing a team in Leicester. When I said team, it was again about eight, eight or nine people. 
So within two years, I kind of graduated from the sales role into the management role. I then specialized in the finance side of um, Xerox, which I really enjoyed um, because a lot of the products were sold through finance plans. So yeah, you start to manage people. And, and again, the, the training the Xerox gave me was fantastic. The, you know, they were they still are a brilliant company, but then I think they were one of the leading companies in terms of their not in their sales training, but their leadership and management training was huge. So we went down to basically Newport Pagnell for you know literally weeks on end at time doing sales, so doing management training. So a lot of a lot of people, James, I think made a big mistake thinking this is all kind of instinctive, you're born with this. I, I think it's something that you know you can learn and if you're really passionate about it and you want to do well at it you can learn in your book for example you're always learning from new new things so xerox really got me on the way to that but but it's all not i say to my three kids always i've never planned my career it's just going to happen i've been dead lucky you know it's kind of extended gone in eight eight nine year cycles but the, the time at xerox was i think was fantastic on the on the leadership and management training side alone and again nothing to do with sport this is pure business Absolutely. So, and that, that's where you had that first exposure to management, of course. And then the opportunity to manage uh, in, in sport, I guess at that point, it was still amateur. Yeah. But what I often say to people, many people say to me, you know, I do a certain amount of work in the corporate world and speaking and stuff. They say, oh, come on, sport is different than business. It's, it's not. Um, my definition of business is delivering results through people. And I repeat that delivering results through people. That's what you do when you're working with Xerox. That's what I do when I'm a rugby coach. You know, I'm in charge of people. You know, and I'm one of the few people who's worked at that pretty high level in both, you know, especially on the on the rugby side and the, and the Olympic side. And you deliver results through people. It's how you manage people, it's how you lead people. So all my business experience, especially that small leasing finance company, was priceless experience when you take out the rugby team. You know, and I, I, I won't name them, but you, you'd know who they were. Are there's been some really high profile rugby players who failed badly in coaching purely because they've not gone through the experience of of of, of teaching. You know, if I had one advice, and they know their rugby because they've all played for England, the Lions, they know their subject. They just took a year out and did a certain a, a, a year's teacher training. Go, go learn how to teach because teaching's coaching, coaching's teaching. There's no difference whether you're teaching kids, whatever. They just took a year out and did that. They'd all be successful coaches because they didn't do that. They thought that the, the shortcut, just I'm a great player, does not make you a great coach. Just because you're a great rank Xerox salesman does not mean you're going to be a great leader of the team or management. There's a different skill set which you've got to learn and practice. So I just got, you know, this wasn't kind of wasn't kind of a plan. It just kind of happened. Then, you know, eventually again, rugby goes professional. And I, I, I guess, as you said, without being sort of too arrogant about it, um, my CV was as good as anyone's in terms of ability to run a rugby team based on my business background. Which, did, to be fair, the guys at RFU didn't really understand this either. They, you know, they knew me as a rugby player. They didn't know what I was doing at Xerox or my own leasing company. They just thought I was. I was a rugby player. They didn't know where, where I'd actually come from. And that's a really interesting point, isn't it? That you were probably selected for your ability in rugby, despite the fact that you'd had all that almost perfect preparation. Yeah, the game of rugby went professional, and England especially were caught with their pants down, you know, because it was this. I literally was driving along today, and on the radio, rugby union's gone professional. And I'm just going, what the hell does that mean? We've just gone professional. Who's going to, you know? And we got caught badly, and we've took a long time to get over it. Um, but you know, it was it was it was just one of one of those one of those things, and it, it went went professional. Um, I was um, it was really strange because um, I was coaching the England under twenty one team as an amateur. I was coaching a little local team called Henley as as an amateur. I was, I was doing that because I really wanted to try to help out. So I was doing my coaching, but running my own leasing company at the same time. It's just like being a player, but I was now coaching. I was coaching the under twenty ones, 
And, um, you know, so I was no big name in coaching at all. In fact, I was a very small name in coaching. I was an ex-player, played for England and the Lions. Um, and then they, they they interviewed, I think they interviewed quite a few people. They eventually came to see me and said, and this is absolutely true, they came here to my house. I think they're a bit surprised that I've got a lovely house and I've been successful in business. And they were like, I can see them looking down going, you, you live here, sort of thing. <laughs> and, then, and then they they said, well, we've, we've made, the, we've, uh, um, We've come to a decision, the the council, we'd like to offer you the, the first full-time job as the, the rugby coach of England. So I'm literally, I mean, these guys are in my house here. I'm going, well, great. That's fantastic. So what's the pay? What's the package? And they go, oh, we haven't really thought about that yet. We just wanted to know, you know, we've, like I've been anointed or chosen. And I said, I think you better <laughs> So they came back about a week later, and I, I won't say what it was, but honestly, it was, it was less than a, a graduate PE teacher with earning. And I said, look, do you want me to bring the kids and wife in and say, great, dad's now being a rugby coach, but you've all got to change schools and we've got to leave this house. So we got and we got it done eventually. But at the time, they're all and I, I, I what I did because I was I was the, obviously the the um, the owner of this um, le- small leasing company, but I was a POE employee. So I actually got, when I got my paycheck out, so look here's my here's my monthly paycheck. You've come to me. I've not applied for this job. You've come to me. Here's my monthly paycheck. Uh, and by the way, that's not including bonuses or directors' guarantees at the end. Director bonuses at the end, at the end of the year. And you see their faces, this guy just says to me, that's ridiculous. We're never going to pay you this. And I said, well, how often do you apply for a job and you're cutting your salary by a third or two thirds? And it was just funny, funny moment. But that's how amateur rugby was. So I, I walked into this real amateur situation, which looking back now was probably a blessing because allowed me to kind of start from scratch in many, many ways. And, and how was that? So that you come into the role, that first three to six months, you know, in international rugby, you don't get the time you get when you're managing a team in a company or in club sport. What's the first thing you, that comes to your mind in terms of how do I prepare these individuals to meet the demands that are going to be imposed on them in in what's now professional rugby? Well, the, the reason I took it on, and it was a big call, but joking apart, the, the business was going well, financials all going well, then you got off of this new new job. And also from a, from a finance point of view, if you're lending money, which we fundamentally work, one of the big no-nos, don't lend money to people who've been in business less than three years. That's one of the key things. That was our kind of headline news. So suddenly me taking this job on was going against all my all my kind of training because the, the job was brand new. No one ever done it before. So in essence, what I was thinking, right, I should come in after three years because then you clean up. Someone else let someone else come in and get all the hard learnings, all the mistakes, all, this, all the pain. Um, but I, di- I didn't go that way. I decided to do it. Uh, and, and it was, uh, you know, I literally went to Twickenham. And then again, as a well-known story, I went to Twickenham, walked in. Um, the lady on reception, I walked in and she looked at me and said, uh, hi, who, who are you? And I said, well, I'm, I'm Clyde Will, I'm a new rugby coach. She said, well, what do you, who do you want? I said, well, what, what do you want? I said, well, I've come to work here. She said, okay, well, she rang Don Rutherford, who was the director of rugby at the time. I could hear the conversation. He's going to, well, what does he want? <laughs> I said, well, I've come to work. He said, no, you've got no your desk here. You're not working from here. There's no, there's no space for you here. So he came down eventually. Anyway, the first, the first fallout came on the first day. I had, I had no office, no sector, and these are things I should have thought about. But I assume people actually thought about this through. So eventually, I managed to find a desk in Twickenham somewhere, and we kind of went from there. But I was literally the first person. There was no one else. It was just me, on my own, and with no one, no kind of. Which, in many ways, looking back now, is again, people shake their heads, and, and that's absolutely true. 
she said to me, what do you want? I said, well, I've come to work here. <laughs> That's incredible. Especially when you look at the size of coaching teams now and the infrastructure behind uh, even tier two club teams, uh, uh, for example. Yeah, I was the first one. I mean, I was, I was really, I mean, looking back now, you, you just, all you, all you can do, James, in those situations of a business point, just throw everything at it. You just got to throw every ounce of energy, passion, and just knowing that, you know, this this is what you've got. It's, it's going to be, it's not going to go like that. There's going to be bumps, big bumps on the way. You just got to throw all your energy at it, and you just hope you're going to come out the other end. And that's why, I've, that's how I've always lived my life, really, ever since kind of running away from school. Just throw all your energy at it, and um, things things will stick. And eventually, we started get you know, it took a couple of years to be to be essence, and and you, you just but I just look look back now that the big thing was that one of my own company for those eight eight nine years that was the best CV in terms of preparing myself to run a rugby team. Hmm. And I was the first professional coach from to me, from the England point of view. And when you when you look back and you reflect on that that I guess team you inherited and the infrastructure that you inherited that you've just described there, and then you flash forward to England number one in the world, England World Cup, winning winning a World Cup, not just winning a World Cup, but winning it away, um, in in, in somewhere historically where England had you know struggled. What were the conditions and and differences that you you sought to control? that would distinguish those two scenarios? Oh, listen, there's loads. I mean, the, the reason I took the job on is to say, you know, I, I wasn't going to just walk away from a company or sell my company without a lot of thought. I mean, the, the number one thing, you know, did we have the team to win a World Cup? Could we be the best in the world? I, I actually think yes. I mean, I, I, I played for England over four or five years, got 21 caps. But, you know, we, we never retook the world on. We were sort of stuck in our little kind of, this is this is England and, we couldn't beat South Africa. We could, if you said to you know when I played, we're going to be better than the All Blacks or South Africa. People laughed at you. So my number one thing was right. Have we got the players? And in and I I got the job in '97. You know, and I was just looking. There's Martin Johnson, there's Lawrence Delario. We had amazing players, but we we're ranked six in the world, and we never really expected to take anybody on. So my my whole thing was right. Have we got the players? Yes. Two. Have we got the finance and funding? Yes. We have more money than any other union in the world, and we do. Uh, and, and again, because they. I didn't know my background. I can read a balance sheet. So when I got first thing I got a Twicken, I tried to find out where all this money was going on. And of course, it was going on all this complete nonsense stuff. So that was my first started getting head to head with people on the board and council, just over said, why are we spending money on all this, all this? What we've got to do, we've got to create the world's best team. The game will just thrive then. So we've got to spend more money on this. I want to bring in more more staff and coaches, want to build this high-forming environment. And, and you know, the, the game's gone amateur for everyone. We weren't the only ones, but we're so far behind the All Blacks in South Africa, just, just our whole history. We've got to break that cycle. So they were the kind of things that kind of just drove me on and drove me on that, that could we? The answer was yes. Because we, you know, we also got more players than anyone else in the world. We've got more players, got more expertise, more money. So all common sense and logic, why we rank six in the world, and fundamentally can't beat anybody. And the, the, the next thing, which I'm really, really pleased about, I mean, um, you know, when I played for him, I played in the backs, you play in the backs, you want to play exciting rugby, you want the ball in your hand. England was so dull. The way we played the game was so boring, so conservative. It's based on, you know, just what we'd actually done over the last 20, 30 years, you know, since I played. So I wanted to break that. In, in, in business terms, you know the term disrupt. I want to just disrupt in a real positive way the way we play the game, do things that are really un-English. And I started to then travel to other sports teams, especially I went to the NFL and Nike took me over there. I worked, worked at the Denver Broncos and University of Boulder. I had two weeks there. That was just the best thing ever. 
going to a real professional sport, the you know the NFL, the, the American football. That was I just just took so much notes. What jumped out to you as the major thing from the NFL of interest? The t- t- two things. To, well, the biggest thing that jumped out is, you know, I've played rugby mm. all my life. We have, you know, we we we, we, we uh, attack and defence. In rugby, you, you, you're both. You, you get the ball, you defend and we attack. In there, they have attack and defence. You have the offence and defence. And also, you know, in the Denver Broncos, they're like, you know, they're about you know, a dozen defensive coaches, a dozen attacking coaches. There were specialists everywhere. You know, and, and then interesting, and, and it was just a great environment because, you know, they have a defensive team that goes on to defend. And when you get a turnover, the defense team comes up and the offense comes on. And this may sound so weird. Look, I'm just going, this is amazing. Then what happens is you actually learn these actually two teams don't like each other. Because you can imagine, imagine losing a game 49 50. In other words, the offense has scored 49 points and the defense has scored 50. That's incredible. The amount of kind of banter and, and in a good form of way, it was just really good. And I, I loved it. And of course, I was there. They didn't know why I was there. I was, you know, rugby in America was rugby. And I was literally the T-boy for two weeks. But I was, go and get me a cup of tea and just keep up the way. Because because we're sponsored by Nike. Nike fixed it. They had to have me there for a couple of weeks. Of course, I'm just taking notes and pictures and thoughts. And the whole thought of me, like, we are going to put a massive stall on defence. Immediately called the guy back a trick and I'm like, right, I'm good. I need a defensive coach. That's when I got all this guy, Phil Larder, who was the rugby league coach for Great Britain Rugby League. This is this is all completely, just today is chalk and cheese. This is all completely unheard of. It all came from American football. We need a kicking coach. I want a, I want a, a skills coach and all this stuff. But just going to American football was one of the best things I did. And I, and I literally, my first two or three weeks in the job, went straight over there. I just sat in the back of the room. Just watched. I just want to see what professional sport was like. Because you assume it, and I can't, I can't just stress to you, you know, all those, all those years ago, we were totally amateur in a, in a, in a really nice sort of way. There's a lot of strengths about being amateurs, but we've never been professional. I've never been a professional athlete, I've never been a professional coach. So suddenly now I'm in a high-profile job, the first ever, and I need to, to get up to speed pretty quickly about what it's actually meant, which I think I did. That's, that's incredible. Um, can you talk to me about the suicidal Australian dentist? Yeah. Um, not sure suicidal is the right word, but it's close to that. When I was with, again, when, when I was with um, Xerox, um, I, I worked in Australia. Um, so I, I, we had, I joined Xerox in 79. We went to Australia with Jane, who's now my wife, uh, in 84, 85. So I had like five years working in the UK. Then I wanted to, um, the, the same guy who employed me in Leicester went to Australia. And he literally rang me up one day, look, I've got this position for you in Australia. You should come and work over here for a couple of years. And we had no kids, no nothing holding me back. So I went to Australia uh, with, with Xerox. And I was literally on a Xerox, another um, sales training course. And this guy at the front started banging on about this flipping dentist called uh, Dr. Paddy Lund. And I just started listening. I thought, what's this all about? And it basically, what, what happened in Australia, I, I think these stats are right, but basically more dentists get themselves into really i'm not sure suicide is the right word but unhappy they're seriously unhappy about being dentists sure because the old dental and this guy paddy lund had got to a situation where he was really really unhappy and he decided to pack in being a dentist and he's going to change his whole career and then the whole story goes basically the last minute he decided not to pack it in give him give it one more go so if your mindset is that you're going to pack something in you start to get quite creative and he completely changed i've got it somewhere here he completely changed the way you run dental practice. He wrote a book about it. Um, it is his actual book. 
that's in a, that's in the inside of this book. It's called Building the Happiness Center Business by Dr. Paddy Lund. I'll find you one that's open in a second. Um, and basically, he just changed the mindset, and he, he just he said, right, I was going to quit this job. Why am I quitting this job? Because I'm unhappy. So I'm now going to really change the way we run a dental practice. And the number one thing is making the customers really happy about coming to see me. And number two is making my team and my staff really happy about coming to see me. So this guy completely transformed the way he ran dental practice. And it's called Building the Happiness Center Business by Dr. Paddy Learn. When you read it, it drives you nuts because quite simply, you read it. It's so simple, so obvious. You go, why is that? That's so straightforward. Because we just get stuck in this orthodox thinking. Your orthodox thinking is a curse in business and sport. And if you just think the way we've always thought, you just get stuck in a rut. So I, I basically went to see this guy. Um, and he, he just changed the way I started to think completely. And every time I work with anybody, the first thing I give them is this book. This, um, what I'm basically saying, James, is if a dentist could completely transform the way he wrote dental practice, what we're about to do with the England rugby team, for example, is, is a walk in the park because there's so many opportunities to do this. So for a very conservative business like really a, a dental practice can do this. So he he did, did this, and he's just a brilliant, brilliant guy. And the, the book is fantastic. I recommend anyone to actually get it. I think that's a great again it sort of feels to me like it's all about these standards right reflecting on what the what sort of standards you want to set for yourself and I mean in that respect you're you're about to take this group of individuals on this huge change management project in a way uh, going from amateur to to the most professional and successful team in the world how do you how do you bring those players with you especially I can imagine some of them are mega hard-headed alpha males like what, what sort of things are you thinking about in terms of? Yeah, I think I think you, you're right. They, they are, a lot of them are hard, hard, hard. What was the word? Hard-headed alpha males. Hard-headed alpha males. Yeah, they they, they were in many ways. But here's a here's a big but. The first thing I did with all of them was sat down one on one, not in the team, one on one, and just tried to explain what we spoke about before, what I'm all about. You know, I want, I do think we can become the number one team in the world, not through patriotism or me being sort of one-eyed with sheer common sense and logic and i said but the, the, key, the key thing i could try to get across to individually this has got to be a two-way process you know the way the way i work and this is what i learned from a small leasing company because I, I was always employing people a lot better than me so i want to listen to you you know i'm not saying i'm always going to agree with you but i want to hear your views i want you to really get involved in this now and if you all get involved and we get this in our room and all these views are coming through from all these amazing players We've got a half a chance. If you think it's all going to come from me, it just won't work. And what I learned, you know, from, again, my small, small company was listening is probably the number one skill in leadership and management. You've got to listen to you, and I mean really listen. And what I started to do was really listen, listen to the players, and they started to, you know, once they got over this kind of shock, because you know, literally someone said, well, hang on, you sure? I mean, you're the coach, we're the team. You, whatever you say, we'll go and do. I said, no, that's not that's absolutely opposite of what once happened. It's got to be a two-way process. I actually expect you to question me, not to not not just for the fun of questioning me or trying to be a smart ass. And I need you to question me if you think we're doing something not quite right. And I will listen, and I will really listen. What I think I became quite good at was, you know, in, in my kind of co coaching language, if someone comes up with a thought or idea, it's going to make the boat go faster. We will do it. What I think I am quite good at is getting things done, you know, getting budgets, getting budgets agreed, getting new people agreed, getting anything agreed. If it's going to make a difference, I will do it. But what I think I am good at, I'm quite good at that myself based on Paddy and new ideas. But what I really started to learn was everyone in the team, and I mean everybody, it doesn't matter if you've been there a day or two days, you are now in the team. I want to hear your views as well as mine. 
kind of a two two way process. You know, and, and looking back to the the team I was in with England, you know, we won one Grand Slam, but we had some. You know, I still remember those days when I was twenty three, twenty four. You know, we had people working in industry, we had captains of industry, we had incredible people, but we just sat there in silence. It all came from the coach because, and that that was a big mistake, a big mistake in business. You've probably heard the, the term James psychological safety. Psychological safety is a massive thing, and I, I never knew that term when I was doing all this, but it makes total sense to me. People have got to be in that team room. They've got to feel safe, stand up, put forward ideas forward, even if they may be going against what the leader's saying or someone else in the team. You may be talking umbrage. That's what I former teams do. And, and, and one of my favourite sayings is, as long as we all leave the room holding hands, everything's fine. But in that room, I expect really, not hostile, but really kind of good debate, abrasive debate. That's where I expect to argue our corner. We're going to win. You know, and I think that's why we got the job done in the end because we had this team that really were passionate about this. They held each other to account. They held me to account. I held them to account, and the whole organisation. And I, I can honestly say I don't think people do that in many, many business or sports to the level we did out with that that rugby team. That's incredible and refreshing to hear as well. I mean, one of the things I've I've heard from people that have had the privilege to sort of play under you and work with you is um, a concept you describe as teamship. Yeah. Could you explain to us sort of what what you mean by that? I guess it links into that previous point slightly. Well, if you're going to if you're going to create a winning culture, um, I think you need three key things: what I call leadership, teamship, and partnership. And I think we understand leadership. I've never seen any successful uh, business or sport go well unless there's great leadership. So I think we get that. We go on courses about that. We kind of get leadership. So I'm just because I'm not talking about it too much it doesn't mean I don't un- un- underestimate it. It's, it's key. The other one is partnerships, which is just internal and external, how you really work with your internal partners and your external partners. What I've never read about, and I think we understand those two, is this thing called teamship. And again, I keep banging up my small leasing company. I just learned to do this. What I basically used to do, um, with almost that exception, but I used to, you know, if we we wanted to, if I want to discuss them with the team, could be a behavior, could be what we're doing from scrums or lineouts. Quite simply, goes back to our previous point. I want to listen to the team first. I want to really listen to what, what you're all, all saying. So I want to get your ideas forward. Let me give you let me give an example. Best want to give you an example. One of the first things I did with the rugby team, and I do this to any people I'm working with, is talk about time. I think time says more about an individual than anyone, anything I can think of. This may have, may have actually one of the things I learned from my, my father, I guess, because we were sitting here as a pilot in the Air Force. I, I think time is absolutely key. Let's face it. How can you trust somebody who can't be bothered to be on time for you? So the first one thing I did, did with the with the rugby team, and I basically did, you know, spoke to them all about time. So I said, I'm going to go away literally without being too dramatic and leave the room. I want you to discuss time. I want to know your definition of time. And time isn't isn't just starting on time. Time's finishing on time. It's having a real respect for time and people's times in the, in the whole thing. So I want to know your definition of time. They kind of got this because I've had one-on-one meetings with them. So they came back to me literally in writing. Um, I'll put it here actually to show you. Uh, they they came. They came, they came back to me in writing. We okay. Our definition of time is ten minutes early. So if you start a, if you, we're going to start a meeting this morning, so at nine o'clock, James, like I did with you. Uh, if it's a face-to-face meeting. We'll be in the room, ready to go at ten minutes to nine. So you, as the leader, this is the key point. Just to stress this, you're, you're still in complete control. You can away no authority. Away. If you like what they come back with you and say, it can become what I call a teamship rule. If you don't like, you go no. That's gone too far. It's not gone far enough. This is what I'm actually thinking. Go and re- rediscuss it. So you're trying to get all the teams to agree this, and then you you have the final say of yes, yes or no. 
and that's how it actually works. And then what we did with time, for example, um, we brand it, and we called this Lombardi time after Vince Lombardi, famous American football coach. So all your teamship rules, you kind of brand them in names that you can remember. I promise you, James, speak to any player, any player who's worked for me for all those years. Just go Lombardi time. They'll go 10 minutes early, you've spoken to Clive. This is what creates the culture. It's, it's, it's actually teamship. My Lombardi time now for Zoom calls is two minutes early. So I, look, I saw, my, saw my clock this morning speaking to you. It said uh, 8.58. I go on. I'm never late for a call. And you were on early as well, which is fantastic. So what I'm saying about this teamship stuff, and then, then what we do is start documenting this. And you see this thing here. This is a huge book. Incredible. In here is every one of England's teamship rules. The Bible. And I'll just find one page uh, if I can find it quickly. But you can get into all sorts of areas on here. If you just see, and don't get, every player had this book. And you see on here, the players knew this. Lead, leadership, teamship, partnership. And on this side, that's all, all come, coming together. They actually understood this as well as I did in the end. So it's them putting forward ideas. And what I'm saying is, if you don't even think about doing this, start off with something easy. Let's say some people are going to get time, for example. But then once you understand the concept, and this is what really amazes me about businesses and even now listening to what's happening with the Tory party with Boris, I'd say categorically the the, the um, uh, no British government since I've been around has had any any teamship rules to the level we had in this because you've got to discuss all this sort of stuff. And I just I just think there's nothing that should be on the table. You know, people, if, you, if you're going to think about this, do, do it with the easy stuff to start with, like timekeeping, dress, language, all this sort of stuff. Create your own winning behaviours. But then you can get into the scrum's line-out, so you can form part of your business. All you're saying to I am listening, we're trying to create teamship rules about them. Let me just, can I just read this out to you? Yeah, I'd love that. This is straight from the player's teamship rule. This is word for word. Signed by, you can see it there, signed by Martin Johnson, signed by myself. And this, so that says it. I, I read this in the data, but it made me chuckle. Teamship is fundamental to the success of this squad, hence the amount of time and energy we've all put, in, put into formulating these rules. Everything has been documented with respect to setting standards when we're together as a squad and when we're back with our clubs. As we've already touched upon, other talented sports teams have failed by not recognising the importance of strict adherence to agreed standards for both players and management alike. Remember, these standards have been compiled by us for us. The vast majority reflects simple common sense when we must fully understand our responsibilities. This is what made me chuckle. These standards must be applied 24-7 and till death us do part. That's pretty powerful stuff. We are here to set standards that are beyond any other sports team, business or government, which they did. Between any other sports team, business or government, think of the government today. Just no teamship rules because they've not sat down as a group and discussed it. And when we say, you know, till death us do part, what annoys me about government intensely you know, these very bright people sit in government, they sit on cabinets. And then what happens when they leave? They all write a book and dish the dirt on everyone. It's absolutely disgraceful. I promise you, there's not a single player. Every one of these rugby players who went on to win World Cups, they've all written books. They've never written anything negative about what the environment was about because that was part of our teamship rules. Because I wanted to know, you know, with the team, I could be myself. I wanted to say things. I wanted to not actually think you're going to hold me to ask about this in a year's time or write books about it. It's all, all powerful. And, you know, no one's ever fallen out over this. So it's a simple subject, teamship rules. So all I'm saying is, it's allowing the team to rediscuss it first. So you're showing you're listening. If you agree with it, it becomes a teamship rule. Now, once it's in place, that's basically it. As I say, once it's in place, because they've been part of it. And I think that the, the definition is, 
you know, if I if I'm if I'm being told what to do all the time, I kind of rebel. I'm not being good at told what to do. If I'm involved in something, I'll deliver. And that's what team 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 is all about. I say that black book is still the best one I've ever seen in terms of operating manuals. It wasn't done by the boss or the company. It was done by the team. But you as the manager, the leader, can still go yes or no. So you're giving away no authority whatsoever because you're still in full control of what's going on. And if and also the last couple of points on this, if you get a new member, a new member joins your team. The first thing they do have to do is read this black book. They can't join the team unless they've agreed everything in it. But here's the big but. But in the first meeting, I'll invite that person. Could be some 18-year-old kid to stand up. So, okay, you've read the black book. Is there anything in here you disagree with? Anything in here you think we can do better? So immediately you're bringing them into the fold. And if you think there is, we'll rediscuss it. And of course, and it's amazing because the first thing that goes, wow, the detail is incredible. It's, it, it, they know you're walking to a high-performing team and they feel safe because all this is in here. But then you ask them to get involved straight, straight away. And if you can't get agreement on something, at some stage, you leaders got to step in. Say there's eight out of 10 or whatever the numbers are. It's okay, with enough discussion about this, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to lead on this now. We're going to go with the two or the eight or whatever. And we're going to trial this for a month. But everyone must try it in the right frame of mind. We've got to get on with it. So you can't just keep chatting about forever, hoping you get 100% agreement. Because what, you, what you're actually, actually trying to get, also maybe people don't quite agree with this. And this, the one person who has got the you know, an unorthodox thinking about it could be right. So you, you leaders got to, got, to, got to step in. As I said, you know, once you once you get the concept, I couldn't, you know, if, if I'm... Can we get you into government? We could do with it. Would you be up for it? I've spoken, I promise you, I've spoken to every prime minister in recent times, apart from Thatcher. Thought about this, but, you know, from Gordon Brown to, to Blair to, to May, I've met them at some stage. You just feel they don't they don't quite get it. They're so busy being working in, in what I call in the government. And they're not, they're just spending time working on it. I mean, Boris is a, a, a prime example. You know, I, I flew back from Beijing with Boris. Fundamentally, quite, I, quite, I quite like the guy. But where's their legs chopped away? Because he had no teamship rules about parties in, in 10 Downing Street over COVID. If they'd created their teamship rules, they should have published them to the world and say, this is how we're operating in our environment as a government. They're all too busy to even think about this. And, and it's a massive mistake, massive, because this is the stuff that makes teams of people, creates the winning culture, creates an environment where people feel really confident to operate. And when you know you've really cracked it, James, is when someone comes to you and says, well, can we discuss this? Can we discuss this? And you get, you know, harassment, race, you know, diversity, all this stuff people have problems with. I have no problems with them. As long as we're all around the table, we get everything on the table, we all discuss it and we make our decisions. What are our teamship rules around around, around these areas? And, and Boris lost everything because he had no teamship rules around COVID, you know, I don't think it's because of Brexit. It wasn't because of Ukraine. It was purely because they hadn't thought about, and no one had come to him, crikey, what are we doing here? They're all culpable. His head's got to go because he's the leader of the team. And in, in the end, he had, no, he, had, he had no choice. But I think if he'd just been able to actually understand teamship properly, about how you run high-performing team, they, they, the government should be our number one high-performing team. 100%. 100%. Then they're going to go, wow, look how they operate. Not, a, not all getting – just real – top level that's the people you want to look up to and it, it's not just the, the current government it's every government I, i'm since since thatcher i'd say yeah. that thatcher i think understood this better than anybody else but since thatcher i don't think we've ever had a government we go wow they're setting standards beyond reproach in every aspect and i don't think they've been able to do that yeah so government's almost this 
talented set of individuals with positive intentions. But I think my favorite quote in around the subject of performance is excellence is not about doing extraordinary things. It's about doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. Yeah. And I feel like this is where the government in particular, as well as a lot of high performing organizations or potentially high performing organizations, just leak so much progress. And, and it's hard to see when you understand the mechanics behind these processes that you've applied and uh, and and how causally linked they are to to producing incredible results. Sorry to interrupt the podcast, but before we dive deeper into the conversation, I want to express how grateful I am that you're voluntarily choosing to spend your time here with us. I also want to take a moment to ask for your support. I want to bring you the best podcast I can in terms of guests, engaging discussions, and thought-provoking conversations every week. And that's where you come in. By hitting that like button and subscribing to the podcast, you play a vital role. Simply put, when you hit that like button or subscribe, you enable the podcast to reach a much wider audience. And the wider the audience, the easier it is for guests within my network to convince their agents, management teams to free up their diary and come on the show. Thank you in advance for your likes and subscriptions. Now, let's get back to business. The next thing I wanted to ask you about was, retroactively as a as a sports fan as a rugby fan you look back and you look at some of those players like your, your martin johnson's your lawrence delalio's your johnny wilkinson's it's it sort of it's so obvious to spot talent retroactively but like what were some of the traits that you perhaps observed in those earlier days as you were selecting these individuals into the squad that that spoke to you in terms of ultimately giving them the opportunity to compete because without that, they perhaps wouldn't be those those, those individuals that, that that we recognise now. I think I'd, I'd say, James, that did, and I, I've you know I'd say this to Steve Orthwick, the current England coach. The number one skill in in uh, leading the England rugby team is selection. And it may sound blindly obvious, but but it may sometimes people don't quite get this. You can have all the tactics and ways of playing and all this sort of stuff and all the things we've been speaking about. The number one thing is selecting your actual team, and that that. It really is an art, not a science. That that that's what I think sets you apart as a head coach. You know, are you good at picking your team? Pep Guardiola, the, you know, is he good? Clearly, is he has the ability to bring in the right people. And I kind of, you know, I inherited this 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 group. You know, after our, our first World Cup, I'd only been there twelve months. Don't forget, we lost in the quarterfinals. My first World Cup. You know, we everyone's after my neck. We lost in Paris. We got smashed by South Africa. I'd only been there a year, or just over a year. And we deserve to win. We're, we're miles off it, you know, and I, I made it very clear, you know, we weren't fit enough. We we just were nowhere near it. Four years later, we win the damn thing, you know, so it took four years to turn the whole thing, whole, whole thing around. But the, the thing you're looking for is players and and and, and that, that is the, that is a skill. But I also think you, you need to get some, um, you, you've got to understand this, the type of game you're playing, the type of business you're trying to run. I, I generally wanted a a team that could run just run, run, run for, for eight, 80 minutes. The fitness, we were nowhere near fit enough. We were nowhere strong enough. When I say fit strong enough, I didn't want to create monsters. I want to create athletes. You know, I wanted Seb Coe's in the team, not not kind of prop, not kind of weightlifters. And, and we really put a huge store on fitness. But we but the, the the biggest thing was every single one of these players, they got the teamship rules. They wanted to be part of this. They wanted they wanted actually in input on this. And this wasn't natural to them, I promise you. You know, a very young Johnny Wilkinson, who is, who is obviously a complete hero of mine, when he first came in the team, I hardly get a word out of him. He was so in awe about Martin Johnson, Delaney, and all these, these heroes of his. And I literally, day one, Johnny, you're, you're the quarterback. I need you inputting on this. 
and eventually he became one of the world's best at it. I remember seeing great team talks, him speaking fluent French to his team down in Toulouse. Incredible, yeah. And they, they, but they all got it eventually. And you create this environment where even a young Johnny Wilkinson feels safe by putting forward ideas, even if he's criticizing other members of the actual team. That's where they got the job done. So you're looking at playing ability. That's the number one thing. But then you are looking at their ability to really contribute to the whole team. And don't don't think one doesn't cover the other. Because I think if you're passionate about your own performance, I think the other the other big thing, what I said to the team from really, really early doors, great teams made great individuals, which, you know, I pride myself on coaching high-performing teams in business and sport. That's my kind of dear DNA. You know, too, a long time ago, I played as a coach. That's what I love. I think if there is a secret to teamwork and being successful, you get every individual working at their optimal level and trying to be better. Uh, and the teamwork almost takes, takes care of itself. Well, I used to use the Olympic example. We, we brought Steve Redgrave in very early on. I knew Steve lives just down the road from me in Marlow. He argued me the best athlete in the world. So I brought Steve in to talk to the team. And I literally sat Steve in the middle of the room. He had no notes, just jeans and T-shirt. Brilliant guy. Sat the players around him. I just want a conversation about what does your day look like? What do you do? First game, game, first went professional. And even I, you know, even I, I, I just stood back. It was like a classic light bulb moment. I was in shock. Because what came across to him loud and clear, he was rowing in the four-man boat at the time. The amount of time they spent together was tiny. The amount of time they spent on their own is huge in terms of their whole life. From obviously being in the gym, their nutrition, the psychology side of things, the passion of the subject. So the, the amount of time together, I said, that's no different than us. We're just, and, and that's why I just sort of think, crikey. If I had 15 Steve Regraves, in other words, 15 guys who've got a gold medal around the neck, in other words, they're the best prop in the world, they're the best fly-off in the world, the best scrum-off in the world. Winning the World Cup would be a walk in the park. The team stuff takes care of itself. So I changed my whole mindset around those individual players by saying, right, one of my major roles is, how, how can I make you better? How can I make Martin Johnson a better second row? How can I make Lawrence Lario a better back row? Johnny Wilkinson a better number 10. And that is really challenging. It's a lot easier coaching the team stuff is in individuals. That's where the specialist coaches really came in, specialised prop board coaches, uh, line-out coaches. We started being all the same. And I think I'll never name them. And uh, then when we won the World Cup, the starting 15, I would say confidently eight of the 15 players would have got into any team in the world in, 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 the, in the World Cup. So in other words, we had eight gold medalists. Then I think we had four or maybe five silver medalists and a couple of bronzes. So they're all on the podium in Olympic time, going gold, medal, and silver, which is amazing. So because, but that, that shows you the, map, the, the amount of passion they put into their job as well. You know, I said before about two way process. You and me will not fall out if I really do believe you're putting it in and you're coming up with ideas. Can we do this? Can we do this? Can I do this? Can I get this? And that will provide also to the coaching team as well, not just, not just the players, the whole staff. I want everyone to be the best in the world. And that, that took some time. Once they got it, they said, this is possible. And then you start to do some real stuff. When I brought Jason Robinson, was one of the best things I've ever done. When he came into the that, – that's the first time I could see myself as a, a, a football coach because you imagine being in the changing room, suddenly Messi walks in. You know, God, we've found Messi, we've found Ronaldo, we've found Stan Beckham. And that's my kind of so, – well, Jason Robinson's in our changing room. No one's going, whoa, what's he doing here? They all go, wow, we're now starting to bring in serious players into this environment. And so the whole thing went, went, went again. But, you know, so I hope that answers your question about, you know, great teams made great individuals. And I don't think as leaders or managers, we ever spend any enough time. How can I help you get better at your job? And then if you do help someone, James, and you make them better, I think you get it back in bucket loads and bucket loads and bucket loads. You've got to open the batting as the leader. How can I help you? But everyone's, everyone's individual. 
those 15 England rugby players, all totally individuals, totally different characters. You've got to do them as in, individuals, but some stage you're going to go as a team. And if they know all the teammates have been putting it in over the last weeks, months, years, you've got half a chance. So there's obviously those times where, it, unfortunately, as a manager, you have to cut players. Not everyone can play in that first 15 or even, uh, I guess, go to the tournament. Is is what's your process for that? Or is it is it benchmarking people against the teamship principles and those who are dear most make it, those who don't? It comes back to as I said before, James, it's you know, selection's everything. So, you know, it's it's one thing giving someone good news, it's not quite as nice giving someone bad news. But again, in terms of teamship, we we discussed this. One of the first things we discussed was selection. I wanted to know the team's rules about how you're going to behave and react as if you're in the team. I want to know how you're going to behave and react if you're on the bench. But most importantly, I want to know how you're going to behave and react if I don't pick you in for a game or the World Cup. What are you going to actually do? Understood. So again, this wasn't one meeting. This was a whole series of meetings. Eventually, they came back and they had their, they had their, their team, team, team team rules. The biggest, my, 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 if you want to use one example, me not taking Graham Roundtree to the World Cup still kind of gives me sleepless nights. Right. Because he, you know, he played, for, he he was there from right from the start for me. Um, only a few months before the World Cup, we went to New Zealand. He was a prop forward. We won, we won that game with 13 men up for to the 10th for, for part of the game. But because of I can only take four props because of the in, uh, the things about loose head, tight head. You know, we had to take somebody who could play both sides, and Graham couldn't didn't want to play both sides. I'd leave him out. I mean, honestly. That was the worst decision. Uh, I've met him several times since. You know, we shake hands, obviously. But what I want to say about Graham Roundtree is he's now doing really well as a coach in Munster and Ireland. He's never criticised that selection once. He's never written about it in a book, never whinged on in interviews on podcasts, never slagged me off because that was the agreed teamship rules. And it's all powerful to get it in place because, you know, how, you know, how those players act, I promise you, can cut your legs away if there's no real teamship rules around this it just doesn't work so also it gives you a lot of confidence you're confident in your team because you know when i was leaving roundtree out he's not he wasn't going to say anything he just said look obviously disappointed respect the decision life life goes on and that was almost like we taught to do it deep down he'd be devastated shattered probably still is today and every now and then i've heard him interviewed and they mentioned the world cups so he reminds everyone that he actually wasn't at the world cup because he's he should have been. And it's the one decision I still question in my mind whether it's the right decision. But you kind of win the World Cup, you, people kind of move on. But it wasn't, it was, what I'm saying is there's a process. And when you think about giving people bad news, if they've been part of setting the whole bad news thing up in the first place, they know how they should react. And they've been part of that. And if you if you don't want to agree to the whole teamship process, there's, there's the door. I think the other thing, James, around this, I've said, I've said to everyone, and listen, guys, you've got a better way of doing this. I'm all ears. I'm listening. You know, if this is going to make the boat go faster by your ideas, so far no one's yet come up to me ever with a better way of doing things than other understanding the, the, the concept of teamship rules where you're involved in that decision, you document things. I've, I've, I was party to this. And if you don't, stand up and go, no, I don't agree with this. I don't agree with this. But he was a party to the whole thing. He wasn't the only one, but he's the, the biggest one that I can honestly say of eight, eight, nine years of being in charge. It's the only one that I still think, wow, I feel uncomfortable meeting him. I'm not uncomfortable. I, feel, I love meeting Graham. I'm so pleased he's doing it. He's being a successful coach, and it'd be a good interview to ask him how he how he how he handles giving people bad news now. But I think one of the things as well is like it's clear to me, so an individual like that, the contribution to, and this is what's becoming clear as I listen to you now, is that 
there was this whole process and it really it sounds like there was this standing on the shoulders of giants in terms of these processes that had been embedded by those players even the work like you talk about graham doing literally months before this was all part of setting that team up for success in terms of that you know the win in new zealand creating just continuing to shift the perceptions of potential so i think there's like a it is almost bigger than just the squad itself um and, and that's the way i think of even even amateur sport like uh, the harder you go on Sunday playing at an amateur level, the higher the standard and you push everything up and you, you shift the baseline in terms of performance full stop. Like the better quality our game is at grassroots, the better product we're going to get at the, yeah. at the tip of the spear. And obviously, um, yeah, that, that that's that's where that individual was at. But it, it sounds like an incredible process. Um, I'd love to ask you to talk me through perhaps your peak experience you've had an incredible career as a player and a manager but is there one moment that sort of sticks out to you as sort of that sits above the rest there was a there was a moment i mean the, the obvious ones the world the world cup final that'd be too to talk about this but, but when i started coaching england um we, we we didn't we didn't i mean it was it was looking back now you know we weren't ready we we, we weren't as good as the southern hemisphere we, we kind of got through this but in my in my um, it was my th third Six Nations games, so I've been there three years. Uh, and we went to France, and, and suddenly we had Jason Robinson in the team. And we, we just played this game against France in, in Paris. And I'll never forget, it, it just absolutely stands out that this, suddenly this team was playing a style of rugby that I'd not seen England play ever. And we just destroyed this French team. And, and just stuff about disruptive thinking. Yeah, I looked up at a scrum. Jason Robinson stood at fly half. You know, we just said, just give him, give him the ball. Give him the ball. Johnny moves over one, and jump, boom. And I'm just going, whoa. And you can see everyone going, he's a winger. Why is he stood at fly half? You know, and just and we just started to change the way, we started to disrupt the way we actually play. And the players loved it because of all the stuff that had gone on. And I think the word process is right. They understood they're part of it. I think process is a good word, but it, they were part of a team where they've been part of building this whole thing up. And, and suddenly, I'm saying, right, Jason, stand there. No one's going to go, why is Jason stood there? Let's, everyone was really, wow, that is huge. We, we started to think differently. And just before halftime, uh, Intermac, who's the father of the, the current French fly half, yeah. um, Intermac, their, their fullback, he, and I, he just came on this line. And Johnny Wilkinson, the fly half, absolutely leveled him. I've never seen a tackle like it. They just, literally, everyone, the whole stadium stopped. This was a fly half tackling like you know back row if Lawrence Deladio had hit him like that it, Lawrence would have been proud Johnny's cut Intermac in half the ball goes down the ball went loose whistle goes for half time in the change rule all everyone's talking about is, did you see Johnny's tackle <laughs> and I just remember those things I remember the two things about the game Jason Robinson getting a fly off scoring straight from the set piece and Johnny cutting Wilkinson in half and you still think hang on we are now doing things that are very un-English and that was always my wish from day one to come in obviously be successful not but the just thing that and this was i wasn't doing this just for trying to be flashed i just thought this is a better way of playing the game we're trying to play quicker than them we're trying to be different than them we want them really worrying about us and, and then that's what started to happen but it was a whole team effort from all the coaching staff players especially all putting in and buying into these ideas they will not agree with johnny um jason robinson playing 10 and that, you know if you do tell us now guys because that's what we're going to do you have to have to be a pretty um, persuasive argument to change your mind on this, but I want, I want to make sure you guys will go with us. 
you feel like that was probably the first tipping point where, from, from all that hard work that you'd invested in? Yeah, we, there, was, there was a good, good work. It definitely was a tipping point because, A, we're playing away from home. It's one thing playing at Twickenham, where even in the bad old days, we expect to win. To go to Paris, to go to Bloemfontein, Auckland, that's where I started to really get excited about the team. That we could go play away from home. There wasn't anything about playing at home now. We go to Paris, and they were a good, they had a really good side. And we, we demolished them in the end. Um, and it was a, was a tipping point because you're doing all this stuff. So it had been two or three years, but suddenly now you've got a team go, wow, this this team is special. And when we arrived at the World Cup, we're number one ranked team in the world. We hadn't, we hadn't lost to some hemisphere team in 12 games, which was amazing. So we set standards I don't think people can quite realise. People remember the World Cup, but it's really, the World Cup was like the icing on the cherry on top of the cake. There's all the other stuff building up to it. And there was, there was some losses on the way, obviously. I mean, that, that record of winning away against the Southern Hemisphere teams is just it's just incredible. Um, I guess on the flip side of the peak experience is perhaps what I'd describe as this sort of redhead moment where metaphorically the shit hits the fan and you're like confronted with, with some challenge or you're shunted into a really challenging situation. Is there perhaps one that stands out for you? Oh, for me, for me personally, if I'm being brutally honest, the the, the Lions tour. Okay. Um, you know, we, we win the we win the World Cup, um, and I then had a fallout with people at Twickenham, which was looking back now is quite bizarre. But we did a we did have a major fallout by the, the way the game should go. So for eight nine years, these guys at Twickenham were totally back to me. To be fair, once I got in there, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, that managing up piece because I think it's something that I think people watching um i guess outside in there's this illusion that the, the sir clive woodwards or the pep guardiolas have this you know they're the king of the castle but there's always someone you're accountable to ultimately and that can be challenging i i, I reported the chief executive i was part of his team um and also there was the board um and we had really good people on the board and again i don't think they'd ever had the England head coach come speak to them not as a group one-on-one i'd go to speak to them one-on-one about this is what i want to do this is what i'm trying to do I'd say for eight years they were fantastic. You know, I, I can't thank Francis Barron enough. Um, and they, they were brilliant. I think probably deep down they were going, look, let's just go with this guy. Um, and I, 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 only after a few years I thought, actually, we, we could actually win this thing. We could actually win the World Cup. I mean, we went to went to Australia. We're the number one ranked team in the world. We haven't lost to anyone in the Southern Hemisphere for three or four, two or three years then. So we've, we've, you know, we were favourites to win. It was amazing. Then we actually got, got it done. But, you know, after after the World Cup, um, things things just changed. They they was they they kind of I, I think I don't think getting knighted was the best thing that happened to me. Um, and it is. I was hugely proud of my family and the whole team. When I got the, the offer, but you know I I I, I since I've heard people say you know oh, you know Crikey, it was, it was it was hard work before this. What's it going to be like now? Which isn't me. I'm not hard work. I think I'm a good team player. What I am do is pretty demanding of people. I'm working with and for. Understandably, yeah. And, I, and, I, and that's my job. I'm there to deliver for the team, for the country. And after the World Cup, you know, suddenly these things, they kept starting to say no to me. And I said, what do you mean no? I'm not here for a debate about this. I'm here just to tell you what I'm doing for the right reason. Where's this all come from? They started to clip my wings and they started to actually, you know, give far too much power to, to clubs in many ways. Where I was trying to go the other way, I was trying to contract players. I was trying to get more influence with the clubs. All the stuff that they should have done now that I think held the game back for 20 years. Because I think I think we're ahead, but they just didn't see it. And also, it, it just, you know, so we had a bit of a fallout. So eventually, I, I kind of moved on. So, um, and then, yeah, again, I didn't apply for Lions jobs. 
I played for Lions when I two tours of Lions job. Uh, every part of my body, James, said, don't do this. Because it wasn't something I was comfortable with. You know, I need to build teams. The Lions is, you really go in, you need somebody, you know, I mean, McGeekin was brilliant. You know, Gatlin was brilliant um, to, to go in. Uh, they're very different characters to me, to go in and have a short, sharp hit. Uh, so they chose me for Lions, uh, and, I, and I accepted it. So many times in my life I've gone, I shouldn't be doing this. This wasn't right. And I, and I never felt comfortable doing it. And, yeah, and then you lose and you you get a, a ton load of feedback from the media and everyone else, which is fine because that's all, that's all part of it. Um, but the, the, thing I'd, the thing I'd say was, and Gareth Thomas wrote me an amazing letter after the Lions tour, and he, asked, and he wrote this in the paper as well by saying, Woodward should be the next Lions coach because he's learned so much on this one. You know, check it all out the window. And I did. I learned so much. I never would have accepted the Lions job again because I, I didn't want to do a second term after, you know, because in my opinion, handing up failure was not not easy. So I'm not I'm not I'm not good at failure. I'm not good at not not winning. What do you think the big lessons were there? Is it is it that you've talked about you had that feeling? Is it is it part of it listen listen to your gut or pay more attention to that? Yeah, no, I, I think just the way I did the whole thing, I I, did, I just tried to do too much. Things like the black book where play, you know, I'm now coaching you know, Welsh players, Scottish players, Irish players who I've been trying to knock the heads off for four or five years. Now I'm trying to be chummy chummy with them and almost tell them what how I was coaching England. And they didn't sit comfortable with me. I, why am I telling them? Why am I doing I'm, I shouldn't have done it, put it that way. And I, I really shouldn't have done it. But uh, there's only one person, that's my wife, said you shouldn't do this. That's interesting. Everyone else is going, no, you do So she was going, no, no, no. So I, I did it. And and, and also when, when when we got it out to New Zealand, just, you know, not picking England players, um, stuff, you, you know, selections, everything, you know, and you've got to get, you do need a balance across the team. You've got to pick some Scots guys, some Irish guys, some Welsh guys. I mean, you've got to get a balance. If you're too heavyweighted on one side, of course, the England rugby team was, you know, the world the world, the world champions. We're the number one ranked team, team in the world. Eight you know? of those gold medalists, I guess, have to get in the, the team for starters, yeah. And, you know, and I'm not trying to defend myself because I said it was a big mistake and I shouldn't have done it. Uh, but New Zealand were an exceptional team as well. You know, Carter was in the team, McCall was in the team. They had one of the best sides of the round. So we got zip 4-0. And it was just kind of... Um, and I was expecting a lot of feedback from, from the, the media. And I got a heap amount of feedback. And I just started to think, last thing was the first time I was going, you know, that was a big, big mistake. And But I did, I learned, I learned hugely from it. It took me... Couple of months to get over it, get through it, get myself back together again, and then I went into football, and it was it was all all good again. So, got no massive regrets about it. But it's one thing I, if I one part of my career, if I could say I would do, not do that, I wouldn't have done it again. And I think I would have probably still be coaching England now, maybe. Yeah, that would be very interesting to see. I, I mean, back to the point you made there about that transition away from the England team. I mean, for me, I guess as as a, as a fan. And a sports fan in general, it seems like sport has so many of these moments where these teams achieve success, whether it's England rugby or Chicago Bulls, and then for some incredibly frustrating reason, the uh, the management or the powers that be tend to stick an oar in here or there, and you can almost see and feel that like, what the hell are you doing? You've worked so hard to build this momentum and this critical mass, and then they disrupt. Whether it's you know moving on with big players or or, or management. And as a fan, I guess it's just incredibly frustrating to see. What else happened with the rugby team? There's, there's, no, there's no doubt. I mean, there was an article in yesterday's Sunday um, Times by Lawrence and Jason Leonard. And they're talking about 20 years ago. They're talking about we went to Australia, New Zealand three months before the World Cup. 
which at the time everyone thought we were crazy to do apart from me and, I, and then they explained why we did it and they were so complimentary but also lawrence is saying you know it's it's actually criminal that the learnings from that team have not been taken on it's almost like the the, the people at twickenham were almost a little bit resentful of it of our success they say getting knighted all this sort of stuff suddenly it feels like that yeah they, they, they went they went the wrong way and i i I, t- I promise you if someone had said to me you win the world cup in november and you're being you're being professional football six months later i'd have said you've been yeah you've had a bang on the head uh and i i wasn't trying to i would do i wasn't trying to do anything that wasn't absolutely sheer common sense to me and what's happened to this game since everything i said and the reason i left because i resigned in the end has come true and now you know we, we've not had a good if someone said England won't win a World Cup for 20 years. I thought you'd barking mad. Why on earth would we win a World Cup? But I think at the time you're just doing your job and you're doing everything to the best of your ability. But we, they just didn't see it. And they they got, they, I think they got a little bit intimidated by the players as well. And these are highly successful players. You know, you look at Dawson and, and Greenwood and Jono. These, these are players that are out there. Not They're not yes men. And I think we've ended up with a lot of people who are, you know, um, very polite and everything. Everything's done the right way, but there's no disruptors in there anymore. I think England now falling behind, way behind France and Ireland now, who have got disruptors. Galtier's a disruptor, Farrell's a disruptor. Yeah, I mean Ireland have been incredible um, to to watch in, in in sort of global sport. Full stop. I think what they've done has just been incredible to see. But it's also, I think, I think one of the things, one of the only explanations I can think of that rationally explains some of those actions are, are a lot of these people in the ownership role or at board level. They sort of they look at the their their outcome focused and they don't pay too much t- attention to the methodology that's been employed to to create the result i guess the counterintuitive thing about performance is that results are really just the product of the process for achievement and when they don't understand or assess at that level they sort of think well we've got the team that winning now we can move one or two individuals on but that team's still fundamentally there but what they forget is that you're ripping out the dna or the the heartbeat of the organization at the methodology or process level and it just kills me as a sports fan to see it but i'll stop i'll stop rant, ranting about that now um one of the things i'd love to ask you about is i mean when we talk about performance excellence outliers achievement the, the default is to zero in on the peak experience but this is the other time of uh the other side of performance is rest and recovery and uh, i sort of describe it as he's like you know elite performance is this intermittent switching between that high focus high output of energy to then this actually flick that switch flick the off switch and then recover and ideally super compensate from that exposure to to the stress or stimulus that allows us to to get better across time but how do you do that yeah it's a good good question i'm probably a little bit different because um i, I the, the way i've done it is in, in, in terms of sw- switching off, I, I don't think you can switch off. I, I, I find it difficult to switch off. I, I, I want to be, I, I want to know what's going on. And if you're going to run that sort of way, you've got to make sure your family are totally in line with that as well. Um, you know, I can go on, I can go, go on holiday and have a great holiday with my, the kids. And Is there a Woodward uh, manifesto, teamship? Yeah, they've got, <laughs> they've got a teamship rules about phones at the, at the t- dinner table. That's got some good, good, good ones around there. But no, I, 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 you know, I'd always want to do my emails first thing between eight and nine, just to make sure on top of everything, and then then switch off. So all you're doing is spending more hours switching off. But the family got to be totally engrossed in that, and they and they've they've got to be involved in that, and that that that's how I do it. 
Um, I still I love golf. I, I I really do love golf. I think it's a fantastic game. So I try and play golf at least once or twice a week. So I've got a handicap of five now and coming down and nice. trying to before I'm too old, trying to get to the scratch. So I, I I love that. I think the family's key or the people you, you work with. I, I just find it I, I, I can't really relate to someone who says, right, I'm gonna just go away, switch off completely for two weeks. I'll see you in two weeks' time. That's that's not me. Uh, that that caused me more stress than, than the other, other other way other way around. Um, I remember there's a, a great thing we did with Jess, who's now got two daughters. I've got two two grandchildren through through Jess and, and Chris. But she, when she was 16, I forget what the paper was. Somebody said, so they met Jess at one of the games. Said, can we do an interview with your daughter about what it's like to be a um, a, a, a child or a high-profile sports coach? So I thought about this, and she was doing music and drama at school. So I said, well, we're going to do this. So I forget, I forget it was now, but if they came round and uh, Jess was being interviewed by this this guy in the, in the kind of in the in the in the, in the orange room, I was with Jane in the kitchen. We we're kind of listening in, make sure nothing daft was happening. And and she she was just brilliant because she said she said um, we have this saying um, about 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 um, uh, dad's job that the upsides far outweigh the downsides. And I've always said this. So, so at times, you know, I get stuff in the press or stuff like me. But let's face it, the upsides far outweigh the downsides. And 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 I, and I, you know, the reason we go on nice holidays a couple of times a year and go skiing is because I do this job, blah 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 blah. So she was just going through all this stuff with this journalist and going, the upsides far outweigh the downsides. And then she came up with a classic line. She went, and hey, how many kids have Johnny Wilkinson for tea? Pretty incredible, yeah. And of course they had. We'd had an eighteen-year-old Johnny Wilkinson team when she was like sixteen. Oh my word! Yeah, I can imagine this. Johnny was far closer to her yeah. than most to us, which is a great line. So I think that's why I said the upsides of what I do, not not just for my kids and family, my lifestyle. The upsides far outweigh the downsides. Now the downsides maybe, you know, I do need to look at my emails once a day, seven days a week, just because that allows me to then go and play golf properly or do my family stuff properly on holiday properly. So that's, that's how I do it. But I think. I think families, families, family and friends are very, very important. I think having a genuine another interest mine's golf. I think the third thing I put down, I'm just a passion, as well as I call being sponge on a rock, passion for learning. Yeah. You know, I'd give anything to go and spend you know, two or three weeks with Pep Guardiola at Man City because there's a process in place. Like I saw those sure. years ago, the NFL. First I went to, you know, 20 odd years ago, or not more than that, no, 30 odd years ago, it was the NFL, just to learn, learn, learn. I've literally just got back from uh, spending some time with the Philadelphia Eagles, and I I can't uh, explain the value in terms of jumping between disciplines, and, and it's incredible. And it's not a case of changing stuff; it just reinforces some stuff. You may just think that one idea can be picked up, uh, but but you want to, you know you know. And I'm just saying to the team we first started, you know, one day I hope professional football comes to see what we're doing. And they did when we won the World Cup. Um, Oh, who's the guy from Leicester just got fired? Um, Brendan Rogers. Brendan was the Watford manager at the time. He just rang me and said, Can I come and spend a couple of days? I said, sure, of course you can. And I was, I was just, I said, That's the biggest compliment anyone's ever paid me. Brendan Rogers. And he, he wasn't even a star manager. He was doing Watford, I think he was in charge of. See, I would imagine that you'd have people biting your arm off for uh, the top managers. Yeah, they were. They were. No, they, they were. That's after what, what happened. And I loved it. It was great. And it wasn't a case of shutting the whole thing down. Anyone who wanted to come and generally, because also, by the way, this two-way process, by the time you leave in a day's time or two days' time, I'd love to know your thoughts. Is there anything else you think we can do better? You know, so that's what I was saying to anyone, anyone who's come. Remember, Andrew Strauss came to see us. 
and just because I, I, I would that's what I did I'm, I'm not I'm not I'm not defensive about it that's the first thing I did was go to the Denver Broncos and University of Boulder which is a university but they have 50,000 people watching their NFL games and it was just fantastic I mean it's just fantastic so, you, so that learning is key so I think you can go I mean I'm such a sad person at times I have more golf lessons than anyone else I know so I'd go on holiday I have a golf two or three golf lessons because I'm just trying to find out how they're teaching what they're saying to you what they're doing not because I'm neurotic about my goal, but I am neurotic about my goal. But I'm just trying to find out from a learning point of view how they coach, what they're thinking, what their thought yeah. processes are. No, I can I can see that. One one thing I'd love to ask you, and I, and and for me, it's just again that iconic moment uh, in sport that will, you, you know, it's going to echo on for a long time uh, in English sport, particularly. But where Dawson puts the ball out to Johnny, he scores that incredible drop goal, and and not technically won the world cup yet but you know it was almost inevitable that that moment now i've heard you describe it and um from a coaching perspective being on the sidelines there that there are actually things that you weren't happy with i've heard things like you know you wanted to take the ball a bit further it was onto the wrong foot i wondered if you could just talk to us about it's so interesting that that's what's you know as a fan you're sitting there and you're just in awe and your jaws on the floor but where's your mind in that moment and what 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 were you thinking Oh, listen, I was I was right in the moment. I was I was at my kind of best, I guess. Um we we, we had a cut, we you know is you know, with scores a level, you know, we, I I know the clock because it's only playing fifty, so we got one minute to go, you know, and, and the, what it all came from was the nearly charged down kick by Lewis Moody. It came from the line out. So I'm just, you know, and we the the first thing everyone's got to realize, you know, everyone knew we we're going for a drop goal. There was nothing else, and we, but we drilled this and drilled this. So many times we've done it, done it in restaurants. We've walked through stuff in restaurants. It's everyone walks through what you're actually doing. And the, the, the big call is the line out. Because you don't win the line out, we don't win the World Cup. So we've now got field position. We're in their half. And it was, it was actually a great moment because Ben Kerr, who's a genius guy, genius player, you're hugely underrated by many people. He calls our line outs. You know, and, and I'm now on the touchline because the, you know, I'm, I'm never normally on the touchline because we have to sit and click in coaching boxes. I'm on the touchline. And I'm, the players, the guys on the bench are all around me. I can hear the calls that are going on. So the the call is to, to Thompson to throw the ball at the back of the line out. Steve Thompson's there. That is a real risky call. But Lewis Moody's unmarked. So Ben, under real pressure, makes an amazing call. But Steve Thompson, the biggest throw of his life, he wants the call to be Martin Johnson from the line out. He wants to try and just chuck it there five yards. So Tom looks like this. The call goes in. Ben's looking around. Amazing call. Calls Lewis. Tom, I promise you, puts the ball down to Ben and goes, you sure? Because <laughs> he wants to throw the ball to the front. So he chucks the ball to the back of the line out. It was a good throw, not a great throw. You see, it, um, Moody catches it here. There's no one marking him. That's why Ben called it there. We have got two lifters. They had no lifters. So he catches the ball. Then we go and think of zigzag. And all zigzag is, what is zigzag, zigzag. What we don't want to do if you do a drop goal, you don't want to go wide. You want to keep the ball down the middle of the field in front of the post. And the whole idea of it, and we've been through so many times, is our mindset's got to be we're going to score under the post. So we're just going to keep punching, 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 punching. Zigzag, zigzag. And it's going really well. Cat takes it up, then Jono takes it up, and it's all, it's all going. But we're trying to get it right in front of the post. In front of the post, you're not going to miss, or we're going to score a try. And I promise you, I can, I can see, and Dawson makes the break, and we get the reason because I'm still going with too far out. I promise you, I'm shouting, no. <laughs> And then Dawson, who again is a complete hero, who's won for the whole game. I wasn't going to ever take that guy off. 
you know, he, he, I can see him just set himself up. Andre Watson is, they're all offside. He's not giving any penalties though. He throws the ball to, 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 to Wilco. My, my first thing, he's left footed, Johnny. He's both, but he's 90% left footed. Hits him on the wrong foot. I'm just going, I mean, I thought it was wrong foot. And I'm just going, we've practiced this for about flipping years and years and years. And you hit him on the wrong foot. And, uh, so the, and then it comes to Johnny's right foot. And he swings the ball because the ball goes flying over. So I'm now shouting, yes, yes, yes. And um, But it's not over. It's, it's, that's not the game over. There's still one more kick, re- restart. And I, I am going nuts as they see him on the touchdown because we're all over the place. We're still celebrating. They, to be fair to them, were brilliant. They got back to halfway line. I think it was Larkin, their number 10. He sees Trevor Woodman stood right in front of him. Trevor Woodman should be on the wing with Johnson listening in. He's out of position. So they kick on Woodman, the prop forward. And I'm just going, if they, and I'm thinking this all through, I mean, if they win this light, they win this restart, we're going to lose the World Cup. And they kick, they kick brilliantly onto, onto, onto Woodman. And Woodman just soars like a salmon. He just soars, yeah, takes this incredible catch. Bomb comes to earth. Balls will plow over him, kick the ball out, and we, we, win, the World, we win the World Cup. But is that amazing, mate? I remember speaking to Dawson afterwards, and only Dawson could think of this. I was looking up to him, and I was joking. I was just like, left foot, right foot. He looked at me, he said, Woody, coach, boss, whatever you call me. He'd already missed three on his left foot, so I thought I'd give it to him on his right foot. Yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> I thought that was one of the greatest responses ever. And there's a little bit of truth in that, because he had missed three on his left foot in the first half. But Dawson was brilliant to that moment, because he's directing things, zigzag, makes the break, makes those few yards with the creek crucial. So Dawson, while it's Johnny, but I was Dawson, who's, that's why he was my number one, number nine. He, under pressure, he knew how to get the team done. He knew how to control everything. And he was totally in control from the line-up, the whole thing. So, and that's why he's a key guy. That's, again, back to Jono. Jono was such a great captain because he allowed the delegation in a real proper sense. You know, he wouldn't have interfered that line-up. He trusted Ben Kay, trusted Matt Dawson implicitly to get, that, to get the process right. And everyone did their jobs properly. So when I'm watching that drop goal, you know, I don't watch Johnny Woods. I'm watching all other 14 players because everyone's doing their job properly. One person doesn't do their job properly. We don't win the World Cup. That's that's the detail that I think you'll find Pep Guardiola has you know, got, got in that Man City team. And their analysis would be huge about the detail. It's just been amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, and, and, and having having had the pleasure to listen to you talk about all this, the, that's probably the one word that if I had to sum it all up, the product of what you've sort of created there with all these principles and processes you've employed is is trust. That's That's how I've sort of perceive it it seems like there was an inordinate amount between the team and and each, each other and then the team and yourself yeah i think trust is a great word james i think if you, you, you if people when you read about yourself other people writing things in papers and books if they say we we trusted him we trusted the system we trusted the process that's a huge accolade you know you you can't make people say things but that doesn't come because you're the hanging head coach that comes with all the hard work and the detail you put in and the effort that goes in for the whole team and you start to trust the whole team, and that's why I think high-performing teams are successful. You create winning cultures because there's trust that goes through it, but it's not just trust in the leader. It's to trust with everybody in the team. You trust everyone. Everyone's doing their job properly. It's a Steve Redgrave stuff. 24-7, you're doing your job to try and be a gold medal winner. I'm trying to be a gold medal winning coach. I want, my, I want gold medal winning physios. I want gold medal winning players. And if we're all doing that, that's why I think trust comes in. Yeah, we trust everyone's put the hard work in, and then you, you tend to get lucky. Is there ever a, a comeback on the cards for rugby for you? Oh no, I, I no, I would have, I would have come in. I don't. I mean, I, I've been interviewed more times than you've had. <laughs> I'm sure since, since uh, various people have spoken to me. They, they, I, I don't know why they didn't want me to come back, but I, I would have come back. I want to come back as director of rugby. That was the job that I thought I was perfect for. 
but they have, they have no director of rugby there now. And I think that's why rugby's in a bit of a uh, a mess, if I'm brutally honest, in England. You know, it's booming in France, it's booming in Ireland, uh, because I, I just don't think they've got the right people in, in the right positions. But I've said my piece so many times. I would I would have done it. I was first interviewed in 2010 properly, and they, they gave it to somebody else. And I, I, and I just go, well, good luck, guys. Yeah, I have no comment on that for me. I mean, it's just incredible to to hear that. Um, I mean, football. I know you had that year with Southampton. Is is that something you'd potentially be interested in? I know, obviously, you're enjoying your work now with the uh, within win the winter sports. No, I, I'm 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 really happy with what I'm doing now. I kind of I, I would have done. I would have. You know, I did a year in football. It was fantastic, and um, you know, I did all my badges. I worked with Harry Redknapp for six months, which was brilliant. He was a, just a genius to be in his office with, but. That, that that 12 months but that was like that was a, i was asking to stay in football or not stay in football then i got offered this job with the, the british language association and team gb and took another direction hence you know if, if london hadn't won the, the olympic bit i wouldn't have done that i would have stayed in football but there's i, I love football i still do i'm a chelsea season ticket holder good man uh, we've, we've had a tough year it's depressing year. hasn't it i've just renewed them by the way i've just paid an exorbitant amount of money to renew them so i'm keeping the faith so again i'm looking forward to coming in so no, it, it was it was. I, I loved it. I did it for the right reasons. Uh, that's a whole new podcast. When I, when I went to the football, what actually happened? Uh, that, that's another another story. But I loved it. I met great characters headed by Redknapp, who was just such fun to be with and around, and very different. We were very different, but we never kind of fell out, and it was a good good time. Incredible. I'd love to finish off just with a few really quick fire questions. Okay, if that's okay. Yeah. Favorite movie? Uh, Every given Sunday. Excellent choice. Do you have a favourite television series? Uh, I've just been. I've just got to go. What's that? What's that Netflix with the footballer? Oh, that's how good it is. I've just got to go. <laughs> anyway, that one. The Netflix the okay. footballer who comes to coach Richmond in uh, in the UK. I was not Ted, Ted Lasso. Lasso sorry, Ted Lasso. Oh, incredible! Ted yeah, Lasso. That's a legendary program. I love that program. Yeah, I've heard that one's uh, incredibly popular. Um, a book you'd recommend? This one's called Critical Non-Essentials by Dr. Paddy Lund. The other one is Brilliant. Building the High, uh, Building Happiness Center Business by Dr. Paddy Lund, which is in this one here. Two the only books I've read twice. Brilliant books. And then last question would be, if you could drill one message into everyone um, so that they truly could understand and comprehend it, what would that message be? Uh, the, the one message for me would just be the, the, the importance of, of, of learning. Um, and just a, a, a passion for learning. And, you know, I think every individual has got the capacity to take themselves to a whole new level. But I, I, I think people make mistakes where you rely on other people. I think you can do so much things yourself from a very, very young age. The, the more you learn about something, if you're passionate about it, you'll, I think you'll be successful at it and get a, a lot out of life. So, and, and I think with today, with the internet, there's, there's no excuses for not, not, you know, really contributing yourself to the, to the learning times, tennis sphere, whether you're a young person. If you want to be a sports person, um, you know, really study the game, study your heroes, study why things happen, and trying, you know, and, and surround yourself with people who want to help you. And I think that that's that's the big message I'd say to everyone. But I think learning is is is, is key. There's a great quote from Nelson Mandela. Uh, I'll make sure I'm trying to get this right because um, I've had my name associated with this a few times. It wasn't me, it? it's him. Um, I never lose, either win or I learn. Just a brilliant quote. I never lose, either win or I learn. When you think about it, that is such a powerful statement to me. You know, when things are not going well for you, or you know, I'm, I'm losing. You know, it's not all about winning; it's about learning from them. How you learn from them, 
hence I go back to my Lions experience and I thought about that you know I never lose you know of course we lost but I learned I learned so much in that experience which I didn't want to do at the time so it wasn't very nice uh of kind of the, the things that were said but I learned from it and you kind of move on strongly but I, I did learn from it and I, I was able to take on the messages to make sure I didn't, didn't make that same mistake again amazing I can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak today um Thank you so much and best of luck with all the future endeavours. Thanks, James. Okay, so so many things jumped out at me in that conversation. First Officer Clive talked about how great individuals make great teams. I love that. Secondly, the way he talked about leveraging other experts. He brought in Sir Steve Redgrave to set the standards as an example. He talked about wanting 15 Steve Redgraves in that team. And by that, he meant gold medalists in every position. I love that even more. And personally, it's a prism I look through in terms of the teams that I build and lead. I think thirdly, Sir Clive's curiosity to acquire more knowledge is what gives him that edge in his craft. So he talked a lot about books and we'll put some links up to those. He also talked about visits to the NFL over in Denver and the University of Colorado team, observing how they were doing things and where there was transfer. For example, the way they were so specific with their attacking and defense coaches, rather than the generalist approach we had in British rugby at the time. The overwhelming take-home message for me, though, was about standards and an undeniable part of leadership full stop or building elite performance in general is the ability to inject your intensity, your enthusiasm, your perceptions of potential, and your levels of belief into the rest of your team and keep it there. I think Sir Clive gave us some real clues in how to do that. And that's where I want us to focus now. Sir Clive talked about this in terms of teamship. So the set of rules, obligations that the team voluntarily agrees to adhere to and commit to. I'm privileged to have experience as a leader, owner, partner, advisor with multiple elite organizations across business, sport and the military. And for me, this is absolutely one of the first things I want to optimize when embarking on any type of optimization or development program. The expectations of yourself and your performers and the standards against which we'll all be judged must be explicitly clear and understood by everyone in the organization. So I would use the term winning behaviors in terms of what we're talking about here. And for me, there's three steps you have to get right in order to capitalize on this in terms of the ultimate currency gains in performance. The first step is that you must get clear on what excellence looks like to you. This starts with identifying moments of excellence. So when you're performing at your best, whether that's for a split second, 15 minutes, a half of one game, a period of games, a month, a quarter, a year, whatever's relevant to you, in those moments, it's about stepping back and breaking down what was unique about you as a team in terms of the behaviors you were demonstrating. What was going on there that isn't always going on? It could be the way the team was communicating, the trust you had in each other, a set level of competence from everyone in the team. It might have been a certain energy or intensity. Then we start to go a bit deeper. Where was that coming from? Why was it unique to those moments? You can even flip the question on its head and reflect on moments where things weren't going well at all and identify what was unique about that period in time or those events. This helps us uncover what we want to move away from in terms of behavior and what we won't tolerate in the future. You can also ask the question, what's the opposite of those behaviors? And that will help point you towards some of the conditions that we want to be targeting moving forwards. Answering this question is how we start to craft a very clear target about what we're trying to build. 
The aim is quite simply to get clear on what it is that enables you as an organization to unlock all the talent, ambition and effort that potentially lies dormant when other conditions just aren't present. That's step one. Once you know what excellence looks like to you, the next step is all around communication. How do you communicate this to every single being in your organization? When I say communicate, I don't mean plaster it up on a wall somewhere, copy paste some adjectives or a nice tagline or hand out a little culture book. Nine out of 10 times, they end up gutless slices of paper. Lord knows, I think we've all had enough of that. Instead, you need to ensure that everyone in the building understands and internalizes the why, the what, and the how in terms of what these behaviors actually look like. I really recommend giving tangible examples or stories that illustrate those behaviors in action and the wider impact they had on performance, and ideally in terms of the results they ultimately produced. I'd also recommend using tons of examples, ideally from what I describe as peacetime scenarios, so perhaps a Sunday night before the training or working week commences, and specifically infer how that behavior is relevant. But then also the more obvious in times of war. So in Saturday's big game, during the presentation, the pitch, the sales call, the investment meeting, whatever that might be in your craft. I think it's really, really important, just like Sir Clive talked about, to involve the cultural architects, the leadership team that makes up your organization. If you want people to consistently engage in behavior, it's vital they have the opportunity to voluntarily buy in to what you're asking of them. When you have voluntary engagement in terms of standards and behaviors, there's no one yelling at each other to get stuff done because now getting your act together and getting stuff done is your job. You voluntarily signed up to do it. The reality is that in any organization, there's that top 10% of performers that everyone else looks to in terms of setting these standards. And unfortunately, in too many organizations, it's done unconsciously. So this is about making the process fully conscious. So we're fully aware of our behaviors and we're fully aware of what's being reinforced in the environment. I think this is a bit like what I refer to as the David Beckham effect. Now, growing up my generation, if David Beckham got a new haircut, I can guarantee you in the next week, half the school I went to would have that haircut, they're off. And it's an example of that word influence. So when you're thinking about who to engage in this process, it doesn't necessarily need to be senior leaders. It needs to be people that have this influence. This involves second level thinking, stepping back and observing who has influence in the organization at multiple levels, whether that's through ranks, qualifications and different domains within the group. You need to really engage these individuals because these guys are going to be the trendsetters in terms of the behaviors, standards and values that are enforced. They've ultimately got political capital and you want to make sure you leverage it. In terms of application, Sir Clive recommended setting in the problem, for instance, what are the standards and timings in this team? Go away, have a think and come back to me. And then the team come back with a proposed standard. An important point here is that you're not losing any power or control. Ultimately, you retain the right to say, no, I don't think we're quite there yet. Go back, but consider this or think about that next time. This way, it all flows from them, which dramatically increases the probability they actually stick to the rules. It's a pretty futile process if we don't get this bit right. Not only that, these individuals ultimately are going to be the enforcers. They're the guardians of these standards. When you look at high-performance teams, senior management shouldn't have to be spending a lot of time working or jumping in on discipline. That should come from the leadership team. And that's another reason I highly recommend involving them intimately in this process.
they're the ones that will have eyes on more than senior management ever will. So it's critical that they're engaged, bought in, understand, and have the authority to enforce these standards. We've all heard about the famous dressing rooms in sport where you've had that Jose Mourinho Chelsea team with the likes of John Terry, Frank Lampard, Didier Drogba and Peter Cech, often described as the spine of that team. They enforce the standards. I'm sure that was exactly the same in Sir Clive's England team. The likes of Martin Johnson, Lawrence Delalio, Mike Cat, Matt Dawson. I've got no doubt they were enforcing these rules before anything got anywhere near Sir Clive engaging in a conversation about discipline. I think the other perhaps famous example in sport would, of course, be the Sir Alex Ferguson Manchester United team. I think his involvement in terms of basic discipline was probably extremely low with the likes of Roy Keane, Peter Schmeichel and Steve Bruce in that dressing room. Another important point for me to mention here is Sir Clive talked about how when you've cracked this, you'll know because your senior leadership team will come to you when there's a problem with the rule or the behaviour or that we need to tweak something specific to optimize the adherence or to calibrate so that it's more realistic in terms of its actual execution. That's a great sign you're really getting this right. Then we come to step three. At this point, we're crystal clear on the behaviors that we know are linked to us unlocking our best. It's been communicated to everyone in the organization. They understand and get it and have had the opportunity to raise any objections. Now it's all about human behavior 101, the absolute basics of management, which are so, so often done really, really badly. I'm talking about positive and negative reinforcement. We're talking reward and discipline. Now, if metaphorically your dog shits on the carpet and you give him a biscuit, there's a very high probability your dog is going to shit on the carpet again. And I see this way too often across multiple organizations where there's clear standards of behavior that are communicated, people then breach them consistently even, or in a significant manner, and there's zero consequence. We tolerate mediocrity and then we moan about it. If you have clear standards and people understand them, but then just breach them, and you don't force any form of consequence, then mediocrity at best will set in extremely quick and it will poison your whole organization. I think one great example over the last couple of years of where this hasn't been the case is with Arsenal manager Mikel Arteta. The team captain, Pierre Aubameyang, consistently breached the standards the team and Mikel had set. Mikel dropped him immediately and put him on the transfer list. He was out the building. This was a really significant, bold and courageous example of not tolerating mediocrity. I'm not suggesting that anyone out there should just copy paste this action. You have to consider your unique constraints and resources before you make decisions like that. But as an example of enforcing high standards and really making sure there's consequence to failing to adhere to the basics required to even have a shot at achieving outlier performance, then it's a great example. The negative reinforcement can range anywhere from, uh, hey, you breached our standards, don't do that again, we've agreed to this, do you understand? Right up to the Mikel Arteta, you're dropped, get out the program, I don't trust you anymore. And everything in between. This is where the art of coaching management and having that finger on the pulse in terms of what's appropriate at the time is really important. And I think leveraging the cultural architects in the organization to help set that is a very wise decision. If you know that those standards are essential to you achieving your goals, then you have to enforce them one way or another. 
The way you do that can be bespoke to your level of intensity, constraints, resources, personality, or phase of growth. You certainly shouldn't copy paste discipline methods from other domains or other people. These methods need to be consistent, thought through, and considered by you and your cultural architects. So in terms of smacking people's bottoms if they're naughty, you can decide how hard the smack is. That's not for me to judge, but there must be some form of consequence. And that's really the take home message here. On the flip side, you need to have very clear means of positive reinforcement. Something I see so often is that there are people out there digging out blind to adhere to the standards set in certain organizations. And they're not only meeting them, they're potentially exceeding them. And it's so often taken for granted, it's not rewarded. So metaphorically, that's where we need to have a clear set of biscuits that we all agree on and then give the performer that biscuit when they're doing the right work. Again, the biscuit could be a pat on the back. It could be a public email to the rest of the organization along the lines of sort of, hey, one of the things here that's really important to us and is going to be crucial to us achieving what we want is behavior X. Now, this individual has consistently gone above and beyond expectations in respect to this behavior. And I want to recognize it publicly. This is exactly what we want to be seeing from each other. And if we all engage in this type of behavior, this is where we're going to end up in terms of success and progress with whatever it is your organization is seeking to accomplish. It can be that simple. The key message here is that we highlight and amplify the right behavior when we see it. Even if the KPIs, the outcomes, the results, they're not quite there yet. Reward the behavior because the behavior is what will drive your results. The counterintuitive thing about elite performance is that results aren't the problem. The results are just the symptoms of your process for achievement. And one of the most crucial factors of any process is the behaviors we consistently demonstrate. So we have to get this right. In terms of measuring this, one of the things I've seen work really, really well is weekly, monthly, fortnightly meetings where those cultural architects we talked about, the leaders, the individuals with influence, sit down and just have a quick recap in terms of what are the four, five, maybe even 10 standards we have in terms of technical standards or the behavioral standards? And has anyone breached them? Has anyone got above and beyond with them? And if no one pops out, then that's fine. But if someone does, whether it's negative or positive, just check in immediately, bring the person in there and then, and either give them that feedback, positive or negative, in a way that's consistent as a leadership team. Psychologically speaking, what we're trying to do here is maximally activate motivation within the organization. And we need to leverage the brain's two motivational pathways. For us, we want to run away from or have some fear of engaging in low performance behaviors. That's the point of the negative consequence of failing to meet those standards. But then we also have to have something predatory and engaging to chase down, to get excited about. And that's engaging in these high performance behaviors going above and beyond to meet standards that win our days, games, weeks, months, and seasons. And that's why we need to reward all of that. A key point here is that these standards must be achievable, and we must then seek to set everyone in the organization up for success. This is certainly not just some set up some ridiculous attainable standard and thrash people to death when they don't meet it, which is why it must be considered, it must be a bottom-up approach involving those cultural architects, and it will be a progressive process where the baseline of those standards will shift upwards across time. And if we execute these three steps properly, that's exactly what you will see. To wrap this up, 
One of the key things about this podcast is unlocking the real tangible psychological, biological factors that can enhance the performance of yourself and your organization. And for me, this simple three-step process is a very tangible way to do that. The only thing that impedes you getting this right is you. The takeaway questions for me then are, one, can you honestly say you're crystal clear on what excellence looks like for you and what it takes to excel? what the behaviors are that drive elite performance in your organization. And then secondly, how many of you are absolutely sure that you've communicated that clearly to everyone in your organization? And three, are you consistently ensuring there are consequences for low performance in terms of these behaviors and rewards for adherence? Following these three steps isn't rocket science, but at the same time, it does require thinking. It's not copy-paste oh, well, the All Blacks do this, therefore, so should we. It's got to come from you. It's got to be bespoke to you, your organization, and the individuals, the cultural architects that set it. And you need to meet them where they are. But the returns for engaging in this process and doing so correctly will be enormous. I can promise you that. I'm always shouting about how excellence is not about doing extraordinary things. It's about doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. And this is one of those absolute fundamentals in leadership and management. Please, please, please take the time to make sure you can answer those questions with a yes. I want to say a special thank you to Sir Clive Woodward. He was the first professional coach in rugby. But for me, one of the first professional coaches, full stop. In terms of how he brought methodology to building an elite performance team, he wasn't just an ex-player that copy-pasted his experiences. He did that thinking for himself, stepping back, reflecting and leveraging other experts. I personally believe that Sir Clive had a significant impact in terms of how professional sport evolved, specifically in the UK, and was an absolute catalyst for what we see today. I think Sir Clive demonstrates immense humility in the role he's probably played in that area. And one of the reasons we're so lucky in 2023 in terms of being able to benefit from so much science in the area of human performance is because of the second level thinking, open-mindedness and hard work that the likes of Sir Clive engaged in back in 2003. So thanks again for that, Clive. It was brilliant to speak with you. I can't wait to catch up soon and watch all your success to come with Team GB Snowsport. I'll be leaping like a salmon when we win that first gold medal. Thank you for choosing to spend your time with us today. I love this topic of human performance and excellence and I've been engaged in it neurotically for the last 20 years. It's a sincere privilege to have the opportunity to share my knowledge, network and learnings with you. Now go and put the principles to work. Make sure you let us know what resonates. Reach out with questions. Blind spots, we've got you covered. Remember, excellence is just a series of days repeated over and over again. Now go and win your day. In 2021, I published my first book, Accelerating Excellence. If you're finding the conversations and information on this podcast useful, you might want a physical reference point and to gain even deeper awareness of the concepts discussed. The book's actually more of an operation manual containing more detail with a step-by-step -step guide on how to implement all this stuff so you can get maximum benefit, which was one of my main motivations in writing it. Yes, I want the podcast and the book to be inspiring and entertaining, but it was non-negotiable for me to make sure that the listener or reader is provided with a structure and direction in terms of actually putting this stuff to work. The book's called Accelerating Excellence. It's a number one international bestseller. And if you're moving from more than just interest towards implementation, I think you'll really enjoy it. Like 
everything I do. The book is evidence-based, but practice-led, drawing on my experience, working with some of the world's most elite, exclusive, high-performing teams and individuals. It's filled with highly actionable strategies you can apply today to become better tomorrow. If this sounds like something from you, see the link in description where you can download six chapters of the book for free in either audio or digital format. It's also available to purchase on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and at your local bookstore. I hope you enjoy. By now, we all know the importance of a winning mindset. We're bombarded with elite performers telling us that mindset's what separates the best from the rest. That if we want to be successful, we need to be more confident, resilient, and motivated. And of course, when panic strikes, we need to calm down, relax, or chill out. Great, we get it. But the question is how? We're given this guidance with almost zero practical advice in terms of how to achieve it. Where can we actually go to develop that world-class mindset? What's the back squat for resilience, the bench press for confidence, and the bicep curl for positive thinking? Well, that's why I created the Mindset app. Through the app, you'll gain access to the psychological skills training used by world champion athletes, special forces operators, and some of the world's most successful traders and investors. The reality is these guys pay me a fortune to help them get this right. But the thing is, these skills are equally, if not more important for the aspiring athlete, executive or operator. And that's exactly why I created this app. I want these tools and training available to anyone, anywhere, anytime. Mindset is a skill and like any skill, it can be developed with the right strategy and effort. The tools and techniques are designed in a way that will literally rewire your brain, like learning to ride a bike or drive a car all the techniques are designed with creating a high-performing, self-regulating U2.0. Every strategy in the Mindset app is backed by empirical research. There's 10-minute emotional control training exercises that have been shown to increase your ability to overcome detrimental decision-making biases by up to 80%. In another study, just three weeks of executing visualization training led to 34% improvements in performance. Another research group found 50% greater improvements in the rate of learning. And just a few weeks of performing visualization led to 22% reductions in anxiety and 21% increases in confidence. These numbers are phenomenal. And I've never met an elite performer in any domain that can afford to be missing out on this type of edge. What I love most is that we've structured everything so that you don't need to carve out an extra hour in your day to get this done. Small bite-sized chunks of five to 10 minutes are all it takes. In fact, I'd only encourage you to use the tool on your commute, in the sauna, at the end of your working day, or bolt it onto the end of your gym session. Any dead time you have can now immediately be transformed to deliver you extreme performance gains. My goal is to remove every possible obstacle to your development. And with that in mind, the basic package is completely free. Visit the link in description and sign up for our pre-launch free emotional control, visualization, and performance routine programs. I really hope you enjoy.